Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is my opinion, and I'm going to seek my approval. Do I approve of me? Love doesn't have any expectations. It doesn't seek something in return. It gives because it wants to. At our core, all of us have these feelings of being unlovable and inadequate. And until we start to care for those parts of ourselves, we can't really have the outer successes that we long for. There's money by you, intuition, insight, creativity, higher vision, transcendence, no. Money does buy you pleasure, and pleasure is good, but it's not enough. We need fulfillment. Welcome to the Unwind Podcast, a show to help you pause, relax, reflect, and be curious. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author and entrepreneur exploring the human experience. I interview world-leading thinkers, shaping ideas around the mind, health, spirituality, philosophy, and culture. I'm often reminded that thoughts become things, so we need to choose the good ones. I hope this show helps you to do that too. On today's podcast, I have Ed Coates. He is a leading consultant in reproductive medicine and surgery. He spent 18 years delivering babies and now is the medical director of a private fertility clinic called the Evewell in London. And they are passionate about increasing education and access to fertility preservation and reproductive technology. I wanted to sit down with Ed to talk about egg freezing, which is the IVF process, but instead of the eggs being fertilized and placed back inside the body, the eggs are stored in a vault. They're frozen for safekeeping until you're ready to have them. I'm going through the process as I record this, and I'm 20 hours away from my own egg retrieval, which is a short medical procedure whereby they extract my eggs. I will do a whole episode on my journey with egg freezing because I do have many thoughts and as I sit here extremely hormonal (laughs) after many weeks of hormonal stimulation, I want to give myself a beat to really process what I've been through and answer any questions you have. But fundamentally, I am overwhelmed with gratitude that science and technology allows women to do this, to take control of their fertility and reproductive health. I hope you enjoyed this informative interview with Ed about the egg freezing process and the fertility preservation world. And please do ask any further questions if you have them. I have been quite shocked actually just how little information education there is out there on fertility. So that's why I'm dedicating a few episodes on the Unwind podcast to fertility because for me to feel more relaxed and to ease anxiety, especially as I'm in my 30s, I have really enjoyed learning about fertility in this deeper way because it makes me feel so much more at peace that I can do something to protect my future children and my decisions in this practical way. So I hope you're enjoying this content. I know it's a slight divergence away from our usual programming, but I hope you are finding it useful and valuable. 
What do you wish people knew more when it came to their fertility? It's such a good question. I mean, the thing I sort of get all the time when people come in and sit down is, I wish I'd known more about this when I was younger. And that's probably because we're not we're not really delivering that at the right time in people's lives. So we're not giving them the tools to understand it. So it's not a great surprise people come down into the clinic and they sit down and they don't know a huge amount about simple things such as menstrual cycles, when am I ovulating, when's my egg reserve going to go bad, will it go bad, what's normal, all those things. Um, and I think having the power and the knowledge to know what your egg reserve is at an earlier stage in your life, I think empowers a lot of women to therefore know have I got any problems ahead? Rather than being told all the time, you mustn't get pregnant. It's all about sex ed, sex ed at school, but actually fertility education. It's one of the most heartbreaking things when you meet someone in clinic and they just sit there with a low egg reserve. We've had to break them bad news and they get told time and time again, don't worry about children, have them when you're later on in your life, career first. So the whole conversation is changing. I mean, here we are talking about it, but I think if people knew more about their own biology, their egg reserves, it's empowering. I think it allows people to take charge of it and not leave it to chance, which is what I'm pleased to say we're starting to see a, a definite change in that conversation. I couldn't agree more with you. I think this is really empowering. On the surface, it can feel quite scary because we're talking about a reality that sometimes I don't think we want to hear. We don't want to hear that humans can't basically beat nature. The reality is we none of us know what's in front of us. Mm. We don't know what's going to happen next week. And the reality of our biology is that, yeah, most people will probably form a relationship, perhaps fall into a position where they have, have a family, have children, but it's not guaranteed. Mm. We're now in a position in science to actually be able to say to people, why don't you do those checks early on to make sure what it looks like for you, what, what it might look like for you ahead of you. If you're in your 20s, the assumption that you can just wait till your late 30s or even early 40s to conceive and have children is not true for everybody. And I think, yes, science, your biology is going to gradually drift over time. That's something that we know. But what does it mean for you? Everyone's different. And, you know, when you see a person in their young 20, in their early 20s coming through and their periods have stopped and you have to tell them that their egg reserve has stopped completely and all of their eggs have gone and their periods have stopped because of that, it's a really, really upsetting time for the patient and for often family come as well in those situations. Um, so I just want to see better education around this. And we need to stop telling people to avoid pregnancy and to actually educate people so they have the tools to know what should I be doing? Should I do anything? Because actually the reality is most of the time you don't need to do anything, but it's about having that knowledge. What questions do you get asked the most when someone first comes to the Eve Well? Do you find that there are these common questions that keep cropping up? It's a real mixed bag of different things people ask me because some people come in having researched everything to you know the nth degree. They've gone through everything on Dr. Google, Instagram, social media. And some people come in really informed with about two pages of questions, which actually <laughs> are quite like because it also means that they've really taken time to really think quite hard because... Most of our patients are really quite informed and quite bright. They've got the tools on the internet to try and do that. But it's, it's what does that information mean for them? So the questions I tend to get is I tend to get people coming in often that have done quite a bit of research. They very rarely just land with no knowledge at all because the, particularly with something like egg freezing, for example, people have taken the time. Often it's been quite a journey of talking to friends, going on social media, looking at the internet to get to the point where you think, well... I'm going to go and find out about this. So by the time they reach the clinic, they've often 
already done quite a bit already. But they, what, they, what they don't understand is, well, now I know a little bit about it. What does it mean for me? So what does my AMH mean? So AMH, anti-malarian hormones, a hormone that we check in the blood, sort of the cornerstone of fertility and IVF. And it tells a woman what her egg reserve is. It's a snapshot in time. But what does that mean? So there's quite a lot of misconceptions about that. Many people think I've got a low egg reserve, I've got a low AMH, all my eggs must be, bad, must be bad, which is just not the case. If I've got a low AMH, it means I can't have a baby. Those two things just don't join up. We know that from good research. But what it is important to know is at the age you are, is it appropriate for where your egg reserve is? And do you need to do anything differently? Is it okay just to leave it for five, 10 years? So having these checks earlier on in your 20s is a really, really good thing. But people come in wanting to know, are my eggs good? What does my AMH tell me? What sort of hormones should I be looking at? Some people don't know that it's not completely normal to have irregular cycles. So some people just have quite limited knowledge about regular menstrual cycles. And I think that's probably our fault as a society, just that taboo about chatting about it. Certainly from a male perspective, you know, when I was at school, people didn't talk about any of this sort of stuff. I think we're seeing that change now. So people are coming in more informed. But I think it depends a little bit on, on their education and also where they've come from in types of different backgrounds, different societies, different cultures as well, as to whether people are willing to talk about these things. So talk me through what does a fertility assessment look like? What are the things you look for in order to see whether someone's fertility is as where you'd expect it to be at the age they come in on? So it's really important, I think, to sort of recognise that it is just a snapshot in time. And it's like any data. If you're taking data and you're just doing it at a point in time, it doesn't guarantee exactly where it's going to be in a year or in five years. So that's a really important concept to kind of stay at this stage. But when you come in for a fertility assessment, it's not as daunting as you think. In fact, so many people can do home tests as well before they even get to the clinic. Basically, it would involve a consultation with a doctor um, to start with, someone like myself or a colleague of mine. You'd normally start with a doctor, but it might be a specialist nurse as well. And you'd be talking about what are the bits in your medical history that might affect your fertility. So I'm sure many of your listeners will have heard of conditions like polycystic ovaries, endometriosis, people that have had pelvic surgery, people that have had other problems in terms of infections in their, in their sexual history. These are all things that can affect your fertility. So if you're a patient that knows that you've had some of those things, then I would certainly be checking earlier because you may be a patient that finds later on in life fertility is harder. Now, that means you may not be able to have such a luxury of time in terms of natural conception. So leaving things much later on will be a problem. So when patients come into the clinic, we would want to know a little bit about their history. So what's their background? Do they have any chronic illnesses? Are there any other problems there? Then really it's looking at simply with an ultrasound and a blood test, are there any fertility kind of structural issues that you can pick up? So it's a bit geeky and weird, but if you would sort of chuck me onto a desert island, what would I take? Would I take a blood test or an ultrasound machine? <laughs> I'd probably take the ultrasound machine, although you wouldn't be able to plug it in. But it's a really, really sensitive tool to be able to look at the ovaries, to look at the womb, to kind of identify if there are any problems there that could cause fertility issues. But more importantly, it's the way we originally started to count eggs in the ovary. So it's the way you could look at a snapshot in time and freeze frame and see how active are the ovaries, what sort of follicle numbers are we seeing. So the follicles are the little areas within the ovary that contain our eggs. And as a woman, you have all of your eggs within your ovaries, right from when you're in your mother's womb. And it's a pretty inefficient process. You start with around 7 million, and then by the time you're born, there's about a million. And then by the time you're menstruating or starting to menstruate as a young woman, you have about less than a half a million. So it's gone right down. You can't get more from at that point. 
and then as you go through your life, the, the, the analogy I use is a bit like a big jar of sugar. Every month you take out a little spoon of sugar and it just gradually goes down, but what none of us know is at what rate it's doing that. So what we're trying to assess in the clinic when you come in for a fertility assessment is with a blood test to check the activity of the follicles with the anti-malarian hormone level, which is abbreviated to AMH. So people will see this online, AMH, what's my AMH? Really important to look carefully at the units because it's measured in different territories around the world in different um, nomenclature, so you get different numbers. So that's important. And structurally assessing fertility with ultrasound. It takes about half an hour, half an hour of your life to find out what your baseline is. As I've said at the beginning, it doesn't mean it's always going to stay like that. And that's where you may need to think about regular assessments, particularly if you're not going to be doing anything with your fertility, but at least you know where your, where your baseline is. And sometimes it's great news and sometimes it can be devastating. And so what sort of AMH levels correspond to how many eggs, you know, is it that, I don't know, a level of 20 AMH equals 47 eggs or, you know, how does that usually correlate with each other? What we tend to find is that as you get older, your AMH will fall. So two things are happening. One, your egg reserve is dropping gradually, as I said there. If you think about... And is that because more eggs are just being released every month, but I thought only one egg gets released a month? So each month you'll have... You have a, think of your sort of spoon of sugar, taking the spoon of sugar. That every little grain of sugar on the spoon represents a little follicle that had the potential to become the chosen one that month, the egg that was going to be released, or, or two, because some people release biologically one or two eggs each month. Depending on how many follicles come through the ovary, you will go through your store of eggs at different rates, and that's different for everybody. But on average, people reach the menopause about 51 years of age. But what we don't know is what's that trajectory. So is it really steep for some people? Do they have inflammatory conditions of the pelvis like endometriosis? So pelvic pain, painful intercourse, pain with your periods. All of those are clues that you may have an inflammatory condition that can be quite destructive to your egg reserve. So watching how your AMH falls with time, it might be more rapid for some people than for others. Go back to your question, what does it mean in terms of eggs? Well, we use the ultrasound alongside the blood test to really try and check there's no discrepancy. So if you're on the pill, for example, if you're using a contraceptive pill, which many people are actually when they come for their fertility assessment, because they're, they're not an infertile group of people, mm. right? They're just coming to get a, a check. They want mm. to know. So they often are on contraception. That may dampen down your AMH level a little bit. So you may get a slightly falsely low result, which is often then seen on scan to look a little bit more optimistic. So really the scan and the blood test together are used to just check it's not a huge discrepancy. It's not one for one. So if you saw an AMH of 20, you'd probably be expecting to see roughly that number of follicles. If I saw 16 to 23, 24 follicles on both ovaries, that would be a bit of a match. But if someone came in with an AMH of two, and then I saw 40 follicles on the ovaries, I'd think the blood test was wrong. Mm. So it's really sense checking, but also to give you because what happens biologically in our bodies is our bodies aren't like a textbook. It's not binary. Every month you get a bit of a variation and there are things we can try and do is within the clinic to try to optimize that in egg freezing cycles and IVF to try and improve how the ovaries respond. But month to month, you'll get a natural sort of variation. And so sometimes you might have a busier month, if that makes sense, in terms of how the ovaries are kind of producing follicles. It's like a big continuous conveyor belt. And these tiny follicles, have sort of, they've been frozen in time, waiting to be activated. And if you've got a low AMH or a low count on the scan, that's a sign that the, the store of eggs month to month coming through with the potential to become that dominant follicle and release the egg is fewer. So a low AMH means a less active ovary. 
A high AMH, classically with a condition called polycystic ovaries, is the opposite. You've got tons of eggs, but often you don't reliably release them. What do you advise people when they are looking to preserve their fertility? And what would be your advice? I guess everybody, men and women, want to preserve their fertility for as long as possible. Can you improve your fertility and how can you preserve your fertility? So egg stores are there, as I said, from your beginning of your life, really. And by the time people come to think about fertility preservation, interestingly, this conversation is changing because if you just go back five years to before the pandemic, the average age was about 36 to 37. I'm now anecdotally seeing more and more people five years ahead of that now coming in, sitting down, wanting to understand about egg freezing, which is a really good thing. People are much more aware of it. I'm a big believer that you can change certain things. People that say to you, you can't do anything to change your outcome of your eggs, I think is wrong. And I think I, ha- I don't like it when I hear her that said. In terms of your diet, your nutrition, your lifestyle, we all you know, run around at a pace of life, but we're always happiest when we're in sort of harmony in mm. terms of our, our lives and what we're doing. And so in terms of getting your body in, into sort of a harmonious place, I think that's really, really important in terms of having a good outcome. Because if you're releasing loads of stress hormones or let's say you're drinking or smoking or putting the wrong fuels into your body, you're going to definitely have a worse outcome. And we've got data that shows us that, you know, if you're drinking lots of alcohol in the weeks leading into your um, IVF cycle, for example, you know, you will tend to have a a worse outcome overall. There are certain foods you probably shouldn't put into your body quite so much, the things that cause spikes in, in your sugar, so highly sort of refined sugars and things that are going to cause spikes in your insulin. We think that's probably bad for the eggs. There's also data around perhaps too much dairy, avoiding too much dairy, too much red meat. So I think there are things you can do. And I talk to patients when they come through about trying to look at what they're doing, saying, where's the baseline? Where's your AMH? What are you doing with your body? So do you smoke marijuana? Do you smoke 20 a day? Do you go into the gym and sort of do CrossFit continuously? Mm. Are you doing all the right things to try and make sure that that's tailored so that when you come into the actual cycle, you're approaching it with a bit more laser focus. And it's only for a short period of time if you're doing something fertility-wise to preserve fertility. And then you can go back to your normal life. It's not forever. So I'd love to get into the actual egg freezing process. Because as you said, it's for quite a short time. I think I was quite shocked in some ways that it went quicker than I ever anticipated. What on earth is happening when people say, I'm gonna freeze my eggs? When does it start and is everyone's egg freezing process different or are the same drugs used or can you give us an entire summary of egg freezing? Every clinic will do it slightly differently and every patient is different. Every patient will have a different body mass index. It's not a great number, BMI, but it's your your body fat stores. Everybody will respond slightly differently as well. So we've got this sort of expected norm of what most people will do, but If you've got a high MH or a low MH, you may need a different drug regime. You may need a different protocol in terms of how we introduce the drugs. What is egg freezing? So egg freezing essentially is going back to that analogy of the follicles that are in the ovary at the very start of your menstrual cycle. Just as your period begins, your body's about to try and encourage or instruct one of your pool of eggs to grow. And that takes around about two weeks to happen before you release the egg. But all the other little eggs that are sat there in their follicles, they get lost during that two week period. So all we're doing in IVF, or indeed in egg freezing, is instructing the whole pool of follicles with a higher dose of the hormone which your biological gland in the brain, which is naturally releasing FSH, 
you're basically giving someone a stronger dose of that. And all that's doing is encouraging not just one follicle to grow, but trying to get the entire group and pool of follicles to recruit and to start to grow in the ovary. Now that makes you as a, as a patient feel a bit bloated. And we track that with ultrasound as your ovaries get a little bit larger. This isn't a dangerous procedure. This is happening all the time in clinics around the world. But what it does require is careful tracking and blood, blood monitoring through those first two weeks. And essentially by doing daily injections of FSH, which is the pharmaceutical derived version of the biological hormone that you naturally produce, these small injections you take every day instruct the, all the follicles to grow. And over a two week period, we'll see on ultrasound, lots of follicles developing in the ovary. Your estrogen levels start to go up. Some patients will comment that if they suffer with premenstrual symptoms, personally, you know, I've seen a real mixture of outcomes for patients. Some people breeze through it and other patients find it quite hard because their hormones will change. But you do see a rise in your estrogen, a change in your hormones in that two week period. And then eventually you get to a point two weeks after your period's begun where we'll see all of those follicles reaching a size where they'll be mature. And what I mean by that is that the eggs within the follicles should be reaching maturity. And it's at that point where you have to stop the cycle in terms of injecting hormones to tell the follicles to keep growing and you tell the body to release those eggs. But we don't let you release them all. You come to theatre with a timed egg collection. Now that's a surgical procedure. Most places around the world, that's not a general anaesthetic. That's done with a sedation. So put a little, little plastic tube in the vein in the back of your hand and you have the best sleep you've had in two weeks usually. And you go off to sleep and then a doctor will scan you and put a needle into the ovary and all of the little pockets of fluid which have accumulated within each, each of the ovaries where the little follicles started, they're now much larger, will be drained and the fluid will go into the laboratory in a test tube, which is where the, the name came from, I guess, in terms of test tube babies and what, what, we, talk, what we originally called IVF uh, in that way. And then it would go into the laboratory and then they'd be looking at eggs, counting eggs, trying to basically see whether you have mature eggs. And that's a, a process that we find out two, three hours after the procedure. So there's a bit of a funneling that goes on from where your AMH is, how you get on in terms of the follicles that decide to, to sort of follow that path for over the two weeks, how many eggs we get from each of the follicles, and then when the eggs are put into the laboratory, how many of them can be frozen. So you can only freeze mature eggs. Mature eggs are not every egg that we get out of the body, but that will depend a little bit on how the cycle's gone, how big the follicles were. Now, the body has all these little follicles, a bit like a Grand Prix, all sort of waiting to pull away as the lights go, but not every one of them will reach the finish line, okay? And so that's to do with the art of getting the, the stimulation and the follicle tracking right. The aim of L ultimately is to get as many mature eggs as possible. And that's really where your cycle comes to an end. You'll be a bit sore when you wake up and it takes a few days to recover. Everybody's different. And then you'll go home. So you're not in the clinic overnight. You're in for a few hours. But it's a huge deal. I mean, I've whizzed through it there in five minutes about what an egg freezing cycle is. But it's, you do need some support. It's, and it's a big step going from listening to me talk about it to mm. going into a clinic, taking that courageous step to find out about your AMH, are there any problems? Because none of us like bad news. Mm. And it's that fear, I think, of getting that news and what does it mean? But, you know, that's part of our job and the team's job at the Evewell, for example, is to just really wrap, you know, patients up and look after them and support them through that because it is hard. And I think patients are often surprised when they come out the other end of it. Actually, it wasn't as bad as I thought. I think that the injections is something that people do get a bit worried about. But on the whole, they're very small injections, wouldn't you say? 
Yeah, I think that's certainly something which patients will. The, the main questions I normally get is, because don't forget, we're not talking about an infertile group of people here. Mm. We're talking about people that haven't got fertility issues. They're opting to do electively a treatment which takes two or three weeks of their life, but they're usually busy, running around, got social lives, got busy jobs, certainly here in London where we're working, you know, they'll be here, there and everywhere. So the big things are, how am I going to do this alongside my day-to-day? Because you've got to kind of make sure you've got time. And the injection one's the other big one for people. It's like the thought of having to give yourself injections. Look, I've never had to go through an IVF cycle myself, but I I definitely see patients very worried about it. And they often come back in and say, it wasn't as bad as I thought. I don't know if anybody listening to this knows friends with diabetes, with the, the little needles that you use in a diabetic pen, really, really tiny. They're not dissimilar to the ones that we're using in IVF. And so some people just do not like needles, but I'm afraid there is a necessity with IVF. Currently, there isn't an easier, there is no other way to do it. Um, so it is needles, but, um, but I think most people are surprised. So let's go to the end process. How many eggs are you hoping to retrieve? What is the average, would you say? So the two factors that affect this are your age. And as I said to your age, your AMH, traditionally your egg reserve will drop as you get older and people will respond differently. Based on how old you are, success of what you're, because there's two steps to this. There's how many eggs can you freeze? And then there's the second bit of this, which is that if I ever come back to use my eggs, what are the chances that those eggs are going to give me what we're all sort of desiring here, which is a live birth? So that varies as you get older because two things change. One is your egg reserve drops as you get older. And secondly, as you get older, the proportion of unhealthy eggs in your body goes up. So if you leave it too late, you end up in a situation where your egg reserve is lower and proportionally more of your eggs will be abnormal. Whereas if you approach this earlier on, which is what we're talking about today, you're in a position where your AMH will, be, will tend to be higher, not always, as we've, as we've said, it doesn't happen like that for everyone, but proportionally if you're doing this when you're younger, more of your eggs will be healthier. So how many eggs do you need to freeze will depend a little bit on how old you are, I would say. So age is a really important delineator of egg quality, ultimately. So the, the best data we have probably from, I guess, Anna Cobo's studies in, in Spain basically showed us that if you're sort of in the under, and life isn't binary like this, but if, if you're under, under 35 and you're freezing upwards of 20, closer to 24 eggs, then almost 95% of patients that do that in that age group under 35 will achieve embryos, which will result in a live birth. Now that's cumulatively. So if you warm up your 24 eggs, let's just assume we take the number 24 and you warm them up and you then inject them with sperm and grow them into embryos. And at the end of that, you have a number of what we call blastocysts, which is an embryo which we would be putting back into the womb in an IVF cycle. Then 95% of people that have frozen around about 22 to 24 eggs will end up with a live birth. So that still means, depending on how you look at life, there's 5% of people that even if you do that, you might still not get there. And that goes back to what you were saying about, I think there's a responsibility here to to really kind of educate patients that say, this is an option. This is something where you're sort of donating your own eggs to yourself later for in life when you get older. It's increasing your chances of giving yourself a biological child of your own. It's not so much an insurance policy because, you know, it isn't quite that in, in our heads either, but it, but it does give you a good chance under 35. As you get older, the number of unhealthy eggs sadly goes up and that really starts to take off from about 37 years of age. That goes up much more steep. So it's not a linear line. It's a, it sort of takes off more steeply. 
you're looking with the same number of eggs, probably more like around a 60 to 65% chance. So you can see there's a downward trend in sort of success as you freeze eggs. But as a, you know, many patients have said to me, I'm 40, should I freeze my eggs? And, you know, you have, you have to be honest and talk through the data we've just been speaking about. But as they, you know, they're right. If, without doing it at all, it's no insurance policy. There isn't anything at all um, if you just leave it and leave it and leave it. So I would never say to a 40-year-old, don't freeze your eggs. It's just about understanding, having that knowledge to know what it means for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. What is the statistics around the freeze-thaw process? Because obviously, for a lot of people who aren't going into full IVF, for women that have not found the partner or women that, you know, just want to freeze their eggs, you've still got quite a long process to go through to get a live birth. So how many of the eggs survive the freeze process? So this is a Again, a really important point for anybody listening. It's really important to do your research and, and ask these questions of the clinic you're going to because you would assume a clinic that has fertility on it and says we're a fertility clinic that does egg freezing will be as good as the next one, not necessarily. Some do a lot of egg freezing cycles and are very good at freezing eggs, but as we've just been talking about, the, the it's the thawing of the eggs, the warming of the eggs, and then the utilization of those eggs which is as important as a patient going in at the... Now, of course, you can move your eggs to different clinics and you could perhaps transfer them to a clinic that you think is more successful, but it's far better at the beginning to do all of that research. So a good clinic, a clinic that is, is sort of freezing eggs quite regularly and doing reasonable numbers of cycles, you would expect to have around about 80 to 90% success rate in terms mm. of warming. That would be a good clinic. An excellent clinic somewhere like the Evo, where I am, it's over 90%. Wow. So that's what you should be aiming for. The days have gone by of the different techniques of freezing, which have rapidly changed, where we didn't see such good survival rates, you know, survival rates in the sort of 50s, 60%. That's moving away, thankfully, now. We're now reaching this sort of time in our lives where science is really becoming quite effective in this domain. And not only that, more people are talking about it. So... The statistic of only about 35% of people ever come back to use their eggs, I think is going to change because, you know, one in six people have fertility problems in the world. We know that from the latest WHO data. And actually, more and more people are now thinking about freezing their eggs. So I think it's going to be far easier as time goes by to get really accurate data for people on, on how freezing eggs, eggs can change their fertility outcomes in the future. 
What are the statistics around the increase in egg freezing? Do you know? Well, I mean, looking back at the HFEA data from 2000, I mean, there's a slight lag with HFEA, the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority is our regulator. So they, they license fertility clinics. You can't just run a fertility clinic. You have to be licensed. So the HFEA data, which kind of collects data, has shown that just between 2000, uh, 2021 and 2022, there was a, almost a doubling of people wow. doing it. So sort of jumping from 2,500 to 4,000 cycles. So I think that's, from my point of view, because obviously... I see the whole spectrum of patients coming in. Male factor fertility problems represent 40% of couples' problems. But to suddenly see that, that uptake of people doing something, which is also now becoming a really successful treatment, not quite as good as embryo freezing. It's not quite there yet in terms of the success of... What I mean, the difference is in terms of you collect your eggs, you actually add the sperm, create the embryos, and then freeze the embryos at that point. That's still probably a little bit ahead in terms of how people do. But to see people coming in now, not just in a few hundred, but thousands of people starting to do egg freezing, I think it's going to be really interesting in the next five years ahead because it is successful technology and we're seeing more and more people do it and talking about it. There's obviously some people who freeze their eggs and may get none or one or two. How many eggs do you confidently need to be able to create a baby from? So again, go back to age. I think if you were to say, as if you were 30 and you froze around eight to 10 eggs, then you've probably from those eight to 10 eggs, if you look, think about what we've just said, mm. about 90% will warm. So let's say nine out of the 10 survive. Utilization rate, certainly at the eve well of, of eggs, is about 40%. So mm. what I mean from that is there's a funneling. So not every egg that you add to sperm will fertilize normally. Mm -hmm. And then that sperm and egg have got a five-day journey to turn into an embryo, which we can then put back into the womb. So not every egg that starts on that becomes an embryo on day five or day six that you could use. But if you look at those rates, with four out of those 10 eggs reaching a blastocyst, in a young patient, that would probably give you a reasonable chance, probably about a 60% chance of a pregnancy when you look at, again, the data from the Spanish group that looked at sort of hundreds of cycles. As you get older, that changes because there's a much greater potential as you get older. Let's take 40 now, where the egg that you've frozen may not be normal. And the problem we have got at the moment is you can't tell the health. You can look and see whether an egg looks subjectively nice or not. And that's a, something the embryologists will always, will always ask them. We'll say, how do the eggs look? Do they look nice? Do they not look, you know, are there any concerns? Have you got any concerns? As you get older, you know that the chromosomes by, by chance within the egg are more likely to be damaged just because of aging. So that plays into how likely is the embryo going to work, to answer your question. So this is why having these conversations, making people aware that this is a technology that's out there, not being afraid to get advice about your fertility, particularly if you know you've got issues, painful periods, irregular cycles, all those things, perhaps you've had pelvic infections, lots of surgery, just get advice early because then you can take the opportunity to drive the car, not let it drive you. You can kind of, you know, be in charge of what you, where you're going to go. So it is a sadly a reducing success rate as you get older across IVF and, and also with egg freezing. But um, go early, don't delay is what I would say in terms of getting some information. I know everyone's personalised and these numbers aren't completely deterministic, but do you have off the top of your head average numbers for average age? Yes, but it depends what you're trying to achieve in terms of would you need 100% sort of live birth if that's your... Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, you're looking at certainly in the under 35 age group, as I've said, 
which is quite broad, but being very honest, the numbers of people in that, that study where, which looked at people under 35 were fewer yeah. than people in the over 35. So there was almost four times as many people in the over 35s because that's where people have been freezing their eggs. Right. So if you can get upwards of 20 eggs, you're getting pretty close to an 80 to 90% chance of, of success if you're under 35, which is really where we're encouraged. And that, to go back to the question, is how many eggs can you get in, an, in a cycle? You might be very fortunate. You might get 25 plus mature eggs from one round. I have seen it. It does happen. Mm. But realistically, I'm not going to sort of peddle something that isn't true. You don't get that all the time. And so some patients are not blessed with a very high egg reserve, but it's about therefore controlling the stimulation, getting as many mature eggs, really optimizing that cycle, putting those mature eggs in the freezer and then potentially doing it again. The average is somewhere between nine to about 12 eggs on average across all egg freezing cycles at the eve well. But we do have, I mean, that's a sort of an average. We do get people that do very much better and we also get people that don't quite achieve that. And so it's a case of, I think, doing it. I always say to patients, do it once, get your line in the sand. AMH is just a predictor. It doesn't tell you, you know, I know this from years of looking after patients, you can sometimes with an AMH of two, get more than 10 eggs. It happens. So it's Mm. just a predictor. So it's always hard and daunting, I think, when you're told your AMH is low, I think to be suddenly told that is devastating news. And I, I really hate it when I have that, you know, when, when I have that conversation because I've only got so much time with the patient and then I know they're going to go out the door and they're going to have a billion questions. Mm. So I think it's really important that, you know, we follow those patients up and we have a chat with them again, give them the opportunity to ask because you only absorb 60% of what you're told. And, you know, a lot of the things you'll be talking about in that appointment, it probably doesn't land entirely. So I think it's important when you get told that news, I would say, go away write down a list of things because you're going to go away, you're going to have loads of things, you'll have all these speech bubbles going on in your head. What, mm-hmm. what does it mean for me? Write them all down and then we try and speak, you know, in a week or two weeks um, or whenever the patient wants to, to just try and kind of make sure that they feel like they, they know or understood what we said. Because it's pretty devastating as a young woman to be told your egg reserve is really, really low. Mm. I can't support that in five minutes. Yeah. It needs continuous support. Yeah. Um, and we have fantastic counsellors who can support our patients and the nursing staff are there. And, and also, our, our, you know, the t- it's not just the, the clinical people, it's the support team as well we, you know, we work with. It's a great team at the EFOR. What's the long-term impacts of egg freezing? Because you are hyper-stimulating a woman, you're massively increasing their estrogen. Like, I mean, how many times more are you stimulating them? Is it like 10 times the amount of estrogen they'd probably have in one cycle or 100? Or I'd love to know those sort of numbers. And does that have a consequential impact afterwards? This is a really common question and it causes lots of fear definitely around am I, am I going to be harming myself by doing this process? It's quite interesting because as I've said already, we're, we're slightly limited in the data here because most of the data around things like breast cancer, for example, ovarian cancer, have been taken from big epidemiological studies which have looked at subfertile populations. So IVF stimulation and egg freezing stimulation are pretty similar. You instruct the ovaries to give you as many eggs as possible during a two-week period. As you said, your hormones go up, your estrogen rises, whether that affects you day to day. As we said, it can to some, it doesn't to others. But that's a sort of spike in estrogen way above what you would normally experience, sort of eight to ten times higher, sometimes even higher than that. So is that harmful? Well, there were some studies sort of 2013, 2014, which suggested perhaps you do have a slightly increased risk of breast cancer with that. But when they looked at the big epidemiological studies, they showed that just being subfertile in itself 
which our egg freezers aren't, is a risk for that. So it's not seen as something which has a significant change in risk. So when we talk about risk, we've got to be clear what that means. We talk about absolute risk and relative risk. So your absolute change in risk is how much, let's say four in a thousand people will be at risk of developing breast cancer. Your absolute change in risk is that one extra person might change. Now, relatively, five to four is a 25% greater risk. So your relative risk is 25% greater, but absolutely it's only one extra person. So it's a tiny absolute change. But we don't think in egg freezers that there's, because we haven't got the data yet, really it's quite limited, that there's a significant risk of any of these problems. And I think we've known that across IVF as well now that we don't think ovarian cancer and breast cancer is significantly changed by doing these very short periods of superovulation of the ovaries. So that's encouraging to see, but of course we need more data. There's no doubt about it. But yeah, because fertility itself is an increased risk for problems, because a subfertile population, for example, might have abnormal hormone levels more likely, and that might therefore change your risk of things like breast cancer and things like ovarian cancer. But the the best epidemiological studies we have haven't shown us that there's a significant risk from these treatments, which is encouraging. Again, it should be very reassuring to people thinking about freezing their eggs. One thing we have to talk about is the massive barrier to entry regarding the price. And... I don't know what the solution is to this because obviously you guys are providing a service and you're paying your doctors and you're paying, you know, all the incredible scientists and you're paying the embryologists to freeze their eggs. So, you know, there is a price to it. But do you think the government should step in? Do you think employers should step in? Like what I find is there's just such deep inequality because it's not some women's fault that they have a lower egg reserve than others but if they do they may have to go through three cycles of egg freezing well that's coming up to 20 grand which is Mm. a huge amount of money and obviously we live in an incredible country here that you've got free healthcare in america i've heard that you've got egg freezing potentially costing people up to 20 grand 30 grand and i'm thinking to myself how on earth yeah on an average salary, like whatever average is, but how on earth can people, we can yeah, afford and, this? And, and I've absolutely seen that firsthand. People come and get advice and then we don't see them again. And it's yeah. because the costs are unachievable. Look, I think I'd, I'd probably go back way before that. I mean, if you look at IVF, it's a complete mess funding of IVF in the UK, mm-hmm. the postcode lottery. Everyone, I'm sure, listening will have heard of that, that unfairness around the country about how funding is allocated. Of course, the NHS is not, you know, it's there for everybody at the free point of entry, but we've become a world now where there's so much technology, so much more than we can do. The primary concept of the, of what the NHS was based on doesn't really ring true in the same way today. So we can't even give people free IVF cycles over the age of 35 in some areas of this country. There's a great website called Fertility Fairness where you can look this up if you're not sure. So egg freezing is sort of another conversation on, but what I'd like to see is us thinking, well, the people that are freezing their eggs are doing that because they've gone out and they've got information. We should be making this, let's go right back to the school level. Let's actually say, yes, there is sex education needed, but we need to fertility educate people as well. Mm. That's girls and boys about their fertility in a way which is appropriate, perhaps around the curriculum, which fits and is, is, is acceptable because it will be different for different cultures. They may not wish to talk about fertility with young children, but knowing, empowering our young children to make the decisions that they need to make at an earlier stage. And that might mean, one example is paying into an insurance policy, for example, for five years. So that mm. if you get to 25 to 28, you're 
you you then use that insurance mm. or that that you know so so I think there are ways to do it. I mean the uh, the government funding is not exhaustive and and you know they're always battling against do we put it into heart disease do we put it into mm. respiratory care is el- el- you know social care in this country is a huge burden on on our taxes so I'd love to think that you know things like this would be funded but being a realist I'd probably say it isn't going to happen soon because mm. we we don't seem to be winning with the IVF side of it which has been happening been discussed for years but look, I think with the right people I think we can change the conversation and actually you know, just look at what they're doing in the workplace now, the work of trying to change the law around making workplaces more fertility friendly, which is completely different off, off topic here. But it's a, you know, these things can be changed, but you just need people like yourself and people out there who are willing to go and bang the drum and then think of ways and strategies to really help people. So I think we've got the power to do it. I'm a big believer that you can achieve most things. You've just got to drive it yourself. Yes, I think that's a genius idea looking at more kind of fertility insurance policies. But what feels crazy to me is you're right, it isn't prioritised and yet the future of our species depends on it. So it feels that there is such a kind of lack of joining up the dots in terms Mm. of how do we survive collectively and this being an essential step in supporting that. I, th- I think you're right. And rather than being reactive, which is sort of where we are, you know, mm. we're talking about waiting till people perhaps find out that they've got a low egg reserve. We need to be the opposite. We need to be yeah. proactive from a younger age, educating people to make the right choices, make the right decisions. Because let's say in your early 20s, you know that your MH is 10. That's going to be very different. If You know, so... I always, I always see a lot of patients across from very early fertility through to the menopause, gynecology. And I'm always interested when patients from Europe come and see me and they're like, the UK is so backward. I see my gynecologist every six months. I have a check. We just don't do that. We don't have the resource to kind of go and see someone and discuss these things. So I think kind of society's got to kind of look at, are we doing this in the right way? We have a very reactive healthcare system. So it's great if there's a train crash and you come off your, or you come off your motorbike, it's very good at repairing you very quickly. So emergency stuff, but this sort of elective stuff, we, we need to really think about better ways to be doing it. And prevention is better than cure. So giving children the ability to take those right decisions. We shouldn't be here in 10 years time saying the average age of people freezing their eggs is 36 and a half still. Right. You know, We need to be saying that people like you have your vaccinations, people think about their fertility. Otherwise, we'll never change that conversation. So for people who are looking to freeze their eggs, what sort of prices are normal? And if, for example, something looks really cheap, I feel that that should be a little bit of alarm bells. Like, What should people be looking for when they're looking into this? Yeah, and this is really relevant. And it's something I'm quite passionate about trying to get right and I know the competition and marketing authority have been really kind of on this in terms of fertility clinics because it should be very transparent from the outset what you're getting into if you're going to buy a car you know exactly what that cost is you don't suddenly find three weeks later that you've suddenly got another load of items on there you you have that discussion right at the beginning so there's a lot now in terms of scrutiny of fertility clinics fertility websites and how they transfer that information some have a headline very low price and then it's a bit like going into a restaurant you suddenly get a bill with all these other items on it which you didn't know and of course once your bum's on the seat and you've met people within the clinic you kind of are halfway there and people I think are drawn in by that so for me I don't like that approach 
The Evewell, for example, we on our website will give you an absolute sort of categorised um, cost of treatment plan that would be predicted, but it's a general, gives you a general overview. So you can kind of, between sort of £5,000 to £6,000, you'd be probably looking at a reasonable expectation for an egg freezing cycle, but it depends on your ovarian reserve. So as a woman, you may need more drugs than somebody else. Your drugs, your medication costs will be, be higher if you have a very low reserve, but not always, because sometimes we use a gentler approach with, with stimulating the ovaries. So I would say do your homework. If you just see a really low price, sort of IVF in a shoebox, I call it, <laughs> just be cautious, look carefully. It's not always the, if it looks too good to be true, it probably is. Um, and just do your due diligence in terms of looking carefully when you're choosing a clinic. So I was put on supportive drugs for about six weeks before I started my cycle. And that was obviously news to me. I didn't realize that sometimes, you know, you think you want to freeze your eggs and actually they'll say, ah, let's prepare your body for like two months before doing that. Can you talk us through that? You know, if someone's thinking about freezing their eggs, like what is the timeline? When the patient comes through to the clinic, you have your tests that we've just talked about, the ultrasound, the blood test, the meeting with the doctor. Some people want to start tomorrow, and I totally get that, particularly if you've been told that you have a low egg reserve. You just think, I need to go, go, go. But actually, there are some adjuvant therapies that clinics will use, such as supplements or um, additional hormones that you would perhaps inject around the cycle in the, in the weeks leading up to, or taking extra things like estrogen priming or growth hormone, which have different levels of evidence around whether they improve outcomes for patients. So a uniform approach doesn't work for everybody, and I think that's why where the EVA works really well is that we kind of look at each patient individually. We don't just put you on a protocol. Everybody gets an individual kind of look at what is right for them. And it's those four to six weeks where those, those follicles are sort of waking up and they're coming through in that wave of antral follicles, which you're going to stimulate in the actual cycle proper, where you're trying to change things. That's concentrating on your diet, your lifestyle, making sure you're putting the right fuels into your body, not drinking too much, avoiding those extra stressful things, kind of getting into that harmonious place that we spoke about earlier. In terms of medications, we will usually do what we call a month of priming, usually in the month before, because we believe that you do sometimes get a better overall response in terms of egg yield. And I've seen it for real in, in some of my patients. So I think just arriving and then starting next week just to manage expectations. Of course, it can be done. But when you think about the investment and the cost of what you're putting into your future biology and your future chance of a biological child, it's important to just pause and just say, okay, what's the right way to do this? And then make the right way, the easy way for the patient. So that means clear instructions, clear kind of, I think everybody going out of the clinic needs to have a roadmap of what it looks like in terms of what am I expecting for you? Where would I expect you to be doing this? And then of course, particularly with egg freezing, working around people's busy lives, you know, <laughs> flying around the world, doing jobs, other competing um, things holidays you know we'll do everything we can to try and make it work around your cycles do you think people should be taking time off work to reduce stress during the freezing or have the eggs already kind of been determined their quality based on what you've been doing in the past so few months? again it's something that we probably don't have a really clear answer to and what i'd say about that is everyone's different so we all go at different paces in our lives and some people are like, go, 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 go. And then other people just aren't like that. And so I think what, I, what I'd say is that if you're releasing lots of stress hormones, cortisol stress hormones, that's probably not good for your body, for your cells, 
for your eggs. We've got some studies which have looked at hair sampling, for example, in patients who, because your hair is a great reflection of lots of things. I know, you know, in the police will look at it, for example, to see if you've been doing anything illegal. But you, you can look and you can look at cortisol in the hair, for example, there was a study in Nottingham that looked at this to see what things like IVF outcomes would be in patients who had more stress. And we saw worse outcomes in patients that were more stressed. It's not, it wasn't a hugely big powered study, but it's really interesting. And and I think logical, it's biologically plausible. So for me, if going to work de-stresses you, which it might do for some people, mm. go to work. If actually, and I see people come in and you just know it's going to be really stressful, then do take some time out to try and do it. But, you know, we only get 25 or so, 30 days leave in most average jobs a year. Taking 15 days off is half your annual leave. It's So this is getting into what, does workplace allow? What is is it a friendly, fertility friendly, egg freezing friendly workplace? And you know, that's another conversation. I'd love to see that starting to change a bit as well. You know, these are things that people are often afraid to talk to employers about because you announce you're going to do IVF. Well, it's a bit like saying, well, I'm going to be taking time off because I'm going to have a baby. You know, those things are people are scared of, and we shouldn't be in that situation, not in this modern world. Absolutely. Ed, thank you so much for your time. I am so grateful to hear uh, your education and how, you know, you break down this process in such an easy to understand way. So thank you so much. Where is the best place for people to find you or ask further questions? Are you on social media? I'm on social media. We've got the Evewell as well is our, our best platform if you want to learn more about. It's a wonderful website. It's got so much information, whether you've been doing fertility treatment for years or whether you're just trying to find out the very first facts about fertility. It's a great place to start. But thank you as well for taking the time to talk about what is a really important topic. And I hope there's some take homes there for anyone that's been listening. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed today, please hit subscribe and leave a comment because this helps the podcast so much. I'd be endlessly grateful if you wouldn't mind doing so. My mental health book, Happy Not Perfect, is available to order now. The book teaches you how to be a flexible thinker, a skill that helps you navigate any challenge that might come your way, helps you manage emotions and helps you thrive to be the bendiest version of yourself. Until next time, I love hearing from you. So do shoot me a message on Instagram. Send me a DM with any of your thoughts. Stay safe and well. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.